0: seated. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 18. We are continuing our long journey through the Gospel according to Matthew. We have one year to go. Seriously. We arrive here at Matthew chapter 18, here on this Palm Sunday. We're mindful of the King who came humbly into Jerusalem and spoke of humility to his followers as well. So let us hear Word of the Lord from Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name, Receives me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, many people ask, you know, on occasion, what, what I studied in school or what my degree was or things like that. It always depends on how the question's asked, what I answer. What I studied for four and a half years was music education. What I got my degree in was religion and philosophy with interdisciplinary studies because I changed my major during my fifth year. Another story for another time. But in Philosophy 101, as a fifth-year senior entering my philosophy degree, I was in Philosophy 101 with a group of freshmen. I was the only non-freshman in the group. And our professor, I, an unforgettable fellow, Dr. O'Meara, who who looked like Doc Brown, from the from the Back to the Future series, the big crazy white hair and a wild-eyed look about everything. He was an avowed existentialist, which meant he did not believe that there were wrong answers, only different perspectives on the question. And one of our early assignments in the in the uh, the school year was to write a a one page, you know, 500 words uh, on one virtue. Choose a virtue and write about it. And you know, some of my classmates chose courage, some chose justice, others chose tolerance. I chose humility as the virtue that I thought should be shared about. And after the assignments were turned in and graded, uh, the professor chose three of us to read our essays in front of the class one day and, and for the class to discuss that virtue and, and how we would presented it. And he chose mine to be discussed. So I had the chance to read to the class about the virtue of humility. And as I finished, and the the discussion opened, there was one young lady on the the far other side of the room uh, who was itching to share her thoughts on what I had to say. And and with, with rage in her voice, shouted, as I'll never forget, there's a difference between being humble and humility. They're not the same. One's good and the other is bad. And my poor professor, who was convinced there were no wrong answers, I just remember him going, young lady, I'm not sure that's entirely correct. And as I've thought about, and I have thought about that exchange many times over the years, uh, what I think and now believe she was trying to say is that there's a difference between humility and humiliation. Isn't there? There is a difference between humility and humiliation. And sometimes, even in the church, we mix those things up. And when Jesus calls us to be humble, do we ever sometimes think that what He's saying is that we should be shamed and we should belittle ourselves and we should be overly, excessively self-critical and we should lower our self-esteem into the dust. We should be humiliated. The Gospel, brothers and sisters, does not call us to be humiliated. It does call us, however, to be humble. Jesus calls us to walk the same path of being humble that he himself models for us. So what does it mean then to be humble? Why is this considered such an important virtue that Jesus himself would say, without it, you cannot enter my kingdom? What is the trouble with being great? In these verses, Jesus teaches us first what's wrong with the world's idea of greatness and calls us to turn away from that. And then he shows us what it means to humble ourselves by becoming like a child. And he shows us that he leads us by example as our humble king. So the first thing he tells us is to turn from the world's greatness. Taken by itself, if we just had this version of the story to go on, I think we could easily understand Matthew 18 in this way. Verse 1 The disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Naturally. I mean, that's a normal question. The disciples would want to know. Who's number one? Who's the all-star in God's kingdom? But if we look at how Mark and Luke have recorded this, they they flesh out the context a little more uh, because the question we find is not so much who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven as we'd expect maybe Moses, Abraham, David, Elijah, one of those wonderful figures of the faith, but instead, as Luke records it in Luke 9, an argument arose among the disciples as to which one of them was the greatest. So the question is not, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples want to know, who's the greatest, Jesus? Which one of us is the greatest in your kingdom? That's what's on their mind. After all, if we we back up and look at the context, it wasn't long ago that, that Jesus invited Peter and James and John to ascend with him up the mountain where they saw Moses and Elijah. And they saw Jesus transfigured into glory. They heard the voice of God speaking to them. Surely there was something special about those three. Judas was given charge of the money bag. Tremendous trust. Matthew was having evangelistic dinners, inviting his friends, and, and having Jesus come speak. Who, who was getting it right? Who was doing the best thing? I mean, What just happened was that, that Peter was questioned about taxes... And he goes to Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, Peter, go out and catch a fish, and there'll be a coin in its mouth. And then you can use that to pay both my tax and yours. And I can see Peter after that experience, can't you? Going up to the other disciples. Hey, guys, pay your taxes yet? You want to know how I paid mine? Jesus paid it. Did he pay yours? Didn't think so. We do this, don't we? We want to feel like we're special. Naturally, the disciples, the same way, arguing among themselves, which one of us is getting it right, Jesus? Which one of us is the greatest? And Jesus has a wonderful habit of not answering the questions that are asked of him, but instead answering the question you you should have asked. Uh, When asked who's the greatest, by which they meant which one of them was the greatest, Jesus instead calls a child, verses 2 and 3. Calling to him a child, he puts the child in the midst of them and says, truly I say to you, unless you turn, and become like children. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to turn away from what you're doing, guys. This way of asking and arguing and comparing and competing will not get you into my kingdom. And unless you abandon that, you won't make it. Jesus knows their hearts. And so rather than compare them against each other, He attacks their very concept of what it means to be great. You see, we, and, and by we I mean the disciples, And me and you and all of humanity hold to a worldly standard of greatness. What does it mean to be great by the world's standards? Well, mostly it comes down to comparison. We compare ourselves to other people to feel great. The greatest in any group is the one who who best expresses or has mastered uh, what that group values and rewards and thinks is important. So in some communities, in some circles, being the greatest means you are the wealthiest. You have the most stuff. Uh, For some, it is looks and appearance and how you dress. For others, it's having the best reputation or the best position or status in in an office. Uh, For others, it's being able to name drop. And brothers and sisters, we are not immune to this. In the church, we do this. We mention pastors and and authors and and famous, uh, respected Christian people that we know and have been associated with. And Maybe they baptized us or or we're their friend or we went to their church and we, we like to make sure people know that we're associated with that person. Being the greatest in the church at times means that we are the holiest. And for those listening to the recording, I put air quotes, we're the holiest the most moral person. I thought for many years that I was the holiest 12-year-old in all of Virginia. Okay, it was only for one year that I was 12, but for a time, I, I considered myself the holiest 12-year-old in all of Virginia, if not the East Coast, because I was good at saying no to the things I was told were bad, and I read my Bible. But it's, that's not enough to make me great. See, Gore Vidal, the, the American author, once wrote, It's not enough that I succeed, others must fail. And that's how greatness works on our hearts. It's not enough that we're good at something. We have to be better than others. It wasn't enough that I was good at doing what the Bible said. I had to be better than everybody else at doing what the Bible said. It, it's not enough to have a good boat. I have to have a better boat than everybody else. It's not enough to have a nice figure or a healthy body, I have to have a nicer figure or a healthier body than my classmates or my friends or my peers. Greatness in the way of the world comes down to comparison. So to be great already puts you in a position where you are threatened by other people because what if they suddenly do better than you do? And if we do not guard our hearts, it also puts us in a position of boasting over other people. Look at me. Look at what I've done. But that's not the only problem with worldly greatness. There's a deeper problem. Because being great according to the world leads us to trust in the things that cannot truly be trusted. If my joy, if my uh, acceptance comes from my greatness and my greatness comes from something like my reputation or my finances or having successful or obedient children or having a wealth of knowledge or theology or whatever, what happens when those things are taken away from me? What happens when my mind begins to degenerate? What happens when the market crumbles? What happens when tragedy strikes? What happens when those things that made me great cannot be relied upon anymore? The Bible says that to trust in those things is building your foundation on sand. And it cannot endure the storm. And so the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, nor the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. To boast in something is to trust in it. To place your trust in it, to build your life on it. And God warns His people, don't build on anything else except me. That I am a loving and merciful God. All other ground, we will sing later, all other ground is sinking sand. And whatever greatness you think you've attained or will attain, will not endure on the day of the Lord. It will collapse. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you this morning to examine your hearts. What is it that you look to in order to feel good about yourself? What is it that makes you think or feel acceptable, lovable, worthy? What I'm describing there is what the Bible describes as being justified. When the Bible says we want to be justified, it means we want to be good enough. We want to be accepted. We want to be worthy. And we look to countless different things to feel worthy, to feel acceptable. If I only looked like this, if I only had this, if only people thought about me in this way, I would be acceptable, I would be justified. What you are chasing, what you are seeking, what you are desiring, whatever it is, if you're doing it in order to convince yourself and to convince others that you are great, then it is sinking sand. But there is another way that Jesus points us to. You see, he said in these verses, that you have to turn. You have to turn away from that way of pursuing greatness, but you also have to do something else. Because when we turn away from one pile of sinking sand, we can easily turn towards another. Oh, I I stopped chasing money, but now I'm chasing uh, being theologically knowledgeable. And now I want to make sure everybody knows how good of a knowledge I have of the Bible and Scripture. Oh, I I stopped chasing uh, body image, and and now I'm chasing... um, you know, being successful in work. We can turn from one false greatness to another false greatness, or as the Bible would call these things, let's call a spade a spade, idolatry. We can, we can turn from one idol to another. But what Jesus calls us to do is to turn away from these things and to become like a child. I said earlier that we get, we get our definition of greatness from what someone or some group of people values. What the people around us believe is important. And for a child of God, the question needs to be, What does God value? What does God think is important? Every culture rewards greatness. Every culture rewards those who are great with praise and with status. It's how that culture reinforces their values. Well, what does God reward? What value does he want to reinforce? Jesus tells us in verses 3 and 4, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. After, after reading those verses, many people like to speculate what is it about a child that Jesus wants us to, to imitate? How, in what way are we to become childish? Now, if you ask me, the disciples were already being childish in, in one sense, but it's not what Jesus is calling them to do. And, and so we go on to propose well, a child is trusting, a child is humble. A child has faith. A child is innocent. And I like the way that one commentator uh, summarized all that. He said, People who say such things speak as if they've never actually met a child. You can laugh at that. I'm sorry. I'm serious here. (laughs) Children are humble. Children want to make sure you know that they're the fastest, they're the tallest, they're the smartest, they're the prettiest. Children are always competing and comparing. And we never, uh, children, I'm not singling you all out because we don't outgrow it. We, We just, we get more sophisticated about it. Children are trusting. Children are very loud about not getting what they want. Children are innocent. No, no, these are not the things Jesus is talking about. It's not the character of a child, but the status of a child that Jesus is speaking of here. First of all, it can't be any characteristic, because whatever you name, whether it's the innocence, the the trust, the humility, the whatever, um, you can quickly turn that into one more thing that you can compete about. Oh, a child is trusting? I'm going to be the most trusting. A child is humble? I'm going to be the most humble. You watch and see. And we can compare ourselves. I am being more humble than them. No, it can't be character. It's the status of a child. But what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus wants us to take on the status of a child? Well, we love children, but they do not, in any culture really, occupy positions of power. They do not have authority. And that's part of the frustration of being a child, isn't it? Everybody else telling you what to do, telling you where to go, telling you what to eat, telling you what you can't do, telling you what time to go to sleep. You can't vote until you're 18. You can't work a full-time job and make good money until you're a certain age. You can't be president unless you're at least 35. I mean, we we have good reasons for some of these things. But they can be frustrating because what we're essentially saying is that the youngest in our society do not have status. They do not have power. They do not have the positions to attain to the things that we consider great. And so as the disciples are arguing over which is the greatest, arguing about which of them has the greatest status, Jesus shows them as an example what God values, a child. God values the one who recognizes how lowly they are, how they cannot claim any status in God's eyes. Not because He wants us debasing ourselves, oh, I'm such a horrible person. No, that's not what it means to humble yourself like a child. It means saying, well, who am I? Really, who am I? We need to humble ourselves like a child because as long as we look to anything else for our worthiness, we will be disappointed. We'll be looking in the wrong place. Psalm 131. Psalm 131 describes well what Jesus is saying here. I'm going to read the whole psalm. It's three verses. Psalm 131. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. How do we do that? How do we humble ourselves? It's not easy. One thing we we need to do, one step we can take is to listen. Listen to how you talk. What is it that you want other people to know about you? Are you trying to show people how smart you are? Do you want their impression of you to be how well connected you are? Or of how funny you are? How spiritual you are? How moral you are? I could go on and on. There's, There's many things that we look to. Many things that we think will impress other people or endear us to God. Things that give us, in the eyes of other people, status. The Lord says, no, calm and quiet your soul. When you're looking to those other things, you have a busy, anxious, noisy soul that needs more and more to reach that position of security. Look to the Lord instead like a child looks to its mother, empty-handed, helpless, unremarkable, with nothing to promote itself. No claim on the mother's affection, except that it is a child. When you feel like you need things like respect or position or security, or anything else, to be safe, to be okay, then you have a noisy soul crying out. But when you hear and believe the words of the gospel, That your heavenly father loves and cherishes you like a mother does her child, and that he protects you, that you will never be cast out, that you are loved and welcomed as you are. That calms and quiets your soul. That releases you from being in bondage to these things that you feel like you have to have. That's the good news of the gospel that you are freed from pursuing greatness because you don't need greatness to be worthy. The one who excelled beyond imagination, the greatest of all in the kingdom of heaven, gave up his greatness for you. So we turn from worldly greatness and we become like a child, but the third thing we see here is that we receive the humble King. When we are trapped and enslaved to the world's view of greatness, It's not enough to just seek it for ourselves. We also seek it in other people. We are drawn to people who are great, aren't we? We we want to somehow receive the overflow, the abundance of their greatness. And so we want to associate with them. We want to befriend them. We want to be connected to them so that we can benefit from their greatness and they can maybe give us a hand as we together climb this ladder in pursuit of, of whatever it is we're chasing. But the gospel moves us in a different direction. Verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Jesus calls us not to chase after and pursue the so-called great people of the world, but to instead pursue the humble and the lowly and the weak, the ones with no status at all. The ones who have nothing to offer us. Because too often we choose In our sinfulness, we choose to befriend and to associate ourselves with people based on what we hope and expect to gain from them. Are they attractive? Do they make us laugh? Are they generous? Could they possibly advance my career or elevate my status in my social group? Well, then they're worth my time. But a heart filled with the riches of God doesn't need to seek blessing in what other people can give you. Because you already have all you need in him. and so relationships, relationships become then an opportunity not to give uh, not to receive and get status, but to give and to bless others. Just as Jesus said of himself in Mark 10:45 the Son of man came not to be served by others but to serve others. And so he said that the one who is greatest will become the servant and the one who is The least of all will become the greatest. The last will be first. And the first will be last. As those who follow Jesus, those who walk in His steps, we don't seek to to get from others, but to instead give. To To not be built up by others, to become more great by associating with them, but instead to lower ourselves and serve others. Jesus says this in Luke 14, when you give a dinner or a banquet, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. But you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You see what Jesus is saying? Don't seek out and chase after the so-called great because you're just trying to get something out of it. Instead, recognize that the gospel has filled you to a point of overflowing. Your cup of blessing overflows. Find those who need it and overflow into their lives. It's good, I think, that we're looking at this on Palm Sunday, being reminded of the day when Jesus entered Jerusalem shortly before His crucifixion and the crowds cheered and welcomed Him and waved palms and shouted, Hosanna! Hosanna! And they saw him as a king, a mighty king. But he was a king coming humbly, And they saw him fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Humble. A humble king. Not a great and powerful and mighty one, but one who came in a manger. And as he called weary souls to find their rest in him, in Matthew 11, he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls." Jesus calls himself humble, gentle, lowly, meek. The one who was in his very nature, deity. God Himself, all the fullness of God, dwelt in Him. And yet He took on the form of a servant. He did not seek to rise and meet the standards of greatness in the world's eyes, but instead set a new standard for us to follow on what we call Maundy Thursday, the night of the Last Supper. The One who had created the very dust of the earth and the bodies, even the feet of His disciples that evening he took off his outer garments and wrapped a towel around his waist and proceeded to to wash the dirt which he had created off the feet that he had created. And then he said to them in John 13, when he'd washed their feet and put his outer garments back on and resumed his place at the table, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. I'm your teacher, I'm your Lord. And if I then... Your Lord and Teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus, in order to save us, humbled Himself. He set aside His status. He set aside His rights and allowed Himself to be ridiculed rather than praised. Persecuted rather than exalted. He didn't surround Himself with the powerful and great and attractive of the world, but instead the weak and lowly and needy. And He commands His followers to follow that same path. To not seek to impress people and win their approval. To not be enslaved to the opinions and judgments of others. To not compete for status and reward, but to become like a child and to receive and welcome the lowly, the childlike, the ones without status. For such a one was your Savior, the humble king. Lately, with, my, with one of my daughters, uh, um, for her bedtime reading, we're going through a series of books from decades ago called the Shiloh books. Has anybody ever read the Shiloh books? It's about a... a okay, some of you have read it. So it's about a young boy, Marty, and he's in West Virginia, and he's got a dog named Shiloh, and it's, there's four books in the series. And uh, Marty is trying to understand, uh, among all the other plots of four books, he's trying to understand a local man named Judd Travers, Just by the way I say that name and the way it sounds, you can almost guess what kind of man Judd Travers is. Judd's not a good man. And Judd's got dogs. He's got these hunting dogs. And these dogs are mean, vicious, and angry, terrifying. And Marty's trying to understand what makes these dogs so mean. He starts to learn that when when a dog feels threatened, when it's chained up and mistreated and abused, and it feels unsafe and insecure, that dog gets mean to protect itself. And Marty starts to see that Judge Travers is the same way. That when a heart feels threatened and unwelcome and insecure, it will make a big show of how strong it is and how great it is or how scary it is to protect itself. Isn't that so true of us? Why do we seek to be great, or at least seek for others to think that we're great? Is it not because we feel threatened, we feel insecure, we feel lost, we feel inadequate. We feel that if we are not loved, then we are not safe. If we are not respected enough, then we're not safe. If we're not better than other people, then we're going to lose our place in the world. And the gospel enters that fearful heart. What Marty learned about Judd's dogs, he also saw was true of Judd himself, that when a heart is made secure by grace, by undeserved mercy and love, such a heart begins to lose its reason to chase greatness, to seek other ways to feel great and secure and better. Sisters and brothers, this morning, please understand that the Gospel is the power Not only of salvation, but the power of God to live the life He calls you to live. The power of God to let go of the pursuit of respect. To let go of the pursuit of admiration. To let go of the pursuit of envy. We want people to envy us. I mean, think about kids wanting other kids to see the cool stuff they have. So that they feel better. Let go of the praise of others. Because you don't need those things anymore. That's what the Gospel teaches you. That's how the Gospel empowers you to do this. Because the Gospel tells you that God welcomes you. And receives you no matter what. No matter what. And He can do so because the greatest, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, humbled Himself for you. And what you gain from His being humble is something you've could not earn and can never lose because it is not given to you because of your greatness. No matter how you choose to measure that greatness, it's not what got you what you have. So anything else you seek to base your security on, your happiness on, your well-being on, your worthiness on, it is sinking sand. But the humble king dying in your place, giving freely, His love, that is a foundation that you build on. That is what we trust. And that is what makes us great. Let us worship Him this, this afternoon. We thank You, our great God and King, that You, Jesus, who were great by any standard, humbled Yourself for us. And in doing so, You have blessed us in a way that we could never attain for ourselves. Turn our hearts away from false and inadequate and worldly ways of being accepted. Show us that all that we need for our acceptance, our worth, our value, our well-being is given to us already. Fill us with the joy of that and teach us to build our lives on that knowledge. Not on the pursuit of other things, but on the confidence of the gospel freely and fully given to us in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.